0: Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please your code. liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from? And where did it? Welcome everybody to another live stream edition of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint Russell. I am thrilled to have this guest today. This is one of the, the handful handful of doctors that were willing to do the right thing and speak their conscience when so few would. Doctor Pierre Cory is the author of The War on Ivermectin. Doctor Cory, thank you so much for joining us. Clint, pleasure to be here. It's an honor. Thanks. Yeah, th- thank you, man. Uh, how's life been since you decided to tell the truth when no one else would? <laughs> I guess the short answer is up and down. But you know, to, to be
1: honest, Clint, I, you know, when 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 I first, you know, somehow became some sort of a public figure, I guess in in COVID. Um, I would say things were pretty rough. I w- it was very disorienting, uh, very unexpected, the response that I was getting, uh, the tax, the loss of jobs. You know, I lost three jobs throughout COVID. And um, you know, so I would say the transition was rough. Uh, I, but I, I want to stay positive here. I am really happy right now. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound cocky, but w- we got everything right, man. <laughs> we're, we're on the right side of history with everything that that we um all the medical evidence, the guidance that we put out, um, I think we saved a lot of people. Um, not as much as I would have liked to, but um, I, I'm just proud of the work that we've done in, in COVID. Me and, you know, my colleagues in my nonprofit, the um, the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. And and now, you know, I, I'm just, uh, I'm in a different place. You know, I I have a new practice. Uh, I'm focusing on uh, studying and treating, uh, you know, vaccine injury syndromes and long-haul COVID. And that's a, a huge... A yeah, yeah, I was going to say it's a huge underserved population, and and it's really challenging. I mean, this is a novel disease, and these patients are really sick, and um, you know, it's challenging, but it's also satisfying. So I, I'm I'm happy. I have a private practice now. I left I left academia. Um, I guess it was a, a mutual uh, agreement that I would leave. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like I said, I want to stay positive. I'm I'm doing well now.
0: Good, good. I'm glad to hear it. Well, I mean, there's something truly inverted about a doctor who saved a lot of lives during a pandemic or a pandemic i don't i don't even know if i would really classify it as a pandemic um but regardless a doctor who saves a lot of lives and has his life you know thrown into tumult uh as a consequence uh that seems completely counter to what the medical profession is supposed to be about uh perhaps we can get into the the underlying factors as to why but uh, um let's just let's talk broad big picture to start off what the fuck happened doc (laughs)
1: I mean, I have. Listen, so one of the things I say, so uh, a medical doctor, right? The core skill of a medical doctor is a diagnostician. I mean, we really have to arrive at, you know, root cause. Unless you understand the root cause and problem, uh, you're not going to be able to treat it. And, And for me, the diagnosis of what happened completely, you know, is reduced to this unrelenting global propaganda and censorship. You know, they they were screaming from every rooftop, every media outlet, you know, is like synchronized 360. And there was just massive amounts of untruths, you know, unleashed on populations across the world. I mean, the advanced health economies of of the world, I mean, it, it was all synchronized propaganda. Right. So from the safe and effective thing to the PR campaign that the ivermectin is a horse dewormer, right? They, they never said the word ivermectin, always just horse dewormer. And, you know, you know, I, I like what you said, you know, like a, a doctor who saved a lot of lives yet, you know, I, I don't think that's what most of the world believes. I think most of the world has been led to believe that I am a leading misinformationist and mm-hmm. that I gave false hope by supporting a drug that doesn't work right? I mean, that that's literally what they've been convinced of. And, and that's so what that's, end
0: though. I mean, like it, there's no, you're not, you're not shilling for something that you're making a tremendous profit off of. So why would they, why would they buy that thesis?
1: Yeah. So that, that's, a, that, I love that question, Clem, because I try to remind people of that. Like literally the way I look at who to trust, what to trust, what to believe, is you have to start with the conflicts of interest, right? I mean, and, and the conflicts of interest right now, with industry so consolidated and the media p- control so consolidated, I mean, they're all the money's coming all from the same place and they all have the same interest. And yeah, I mean, we didn't we didn't have conflicts of interest. We literally are a nonprofit whose sole mission was to come up with the most effective treatment protocols. And the things that we chose. Had no conflicts. Like we don't have any financial interest. We're not trying to support a pharmaceutical product. I mean, we chose stuff that worked, and 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 that's why if you look at our protocols compared to, like I said, the protocols out of the advanced. I mean, it's an absolute. It, it's, I would say it's a joke, but it's not funny. Yeah. Um, and and so yeah, I, I appreciate that. We we did not have conflicts in in the work that we did.
0: Well, let's go ahead and and break that down a little bit. I mean because I'm sure many of my audience are still convinced that ivermectin is, you know, just a horse medicine and <laughs> all that, yeah. all that. Yeah. Um, has there been any, you know, double blind controlled studies that that have proven efficacy to, to date? <laughs> so <laughs> great question. Okay.
1: So let me, let me give you the rundown. Let, let, let's actually, I think, you know, you were kind of touching on this on the question before, and I think it's probably best to set the context for what happened to ivermectin and, And it's as you said, so here you had a drug that literally threatened massive markets that opened up overnight for one of the most rapacious and criminal industries on earth, right? So the pharmaceutical industry well-documented crimes over many decades, also reasonably well-documented efforts to attack generic off-patent repurposed drugs in numerous disease models. I mean, they, they have a whole history of doing this. In fact, it literally is the Achilles heel of their entire business model. They have to destroy the older, safer drugs. Okay. And I would say Makes that- Makes sense. Yeah. In the history of them doing that, I would say ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine never before have they threatened those financial interests on on a bigger scale. I mean, you you literally had a disease that was pretty much infecting almost everybody on earth, right? So like now you have a market where literally everybody on earth is, is a potential customer for a pharmaceutical product. And you have a devastating competitor in the marketplace, right, which is ivermectin. And so so, you know, the point about I want to talk about some of the evidence, not not some of the evidence. There's a mountain of evidence for ivermectin. But, you know, what I one of the things that I document on my book is the attacks on ivermectin started well before the trials came out. Um hmm. and so you know, you, you have to scratch your head and say, geez, why were they going after that drug so hard? when the there was either little evidence or of the evidence that it was it was highly positive and so you saw the attack and the attacks just escalated um but going to the evidence now three years into the pandemic there's a site uh, c19early.org phenomenal website of uh, anonymous scientists who've compiled all of the trials evidence for over three dozen therapeutics. So there's actually 43 early treatment drugs listed on there. Wow. Every trial in support of all those drugs is listed. They've combined them into what's called a meta-analysis for everything, from remdesivir, monoclonal antibody, you, you name it. A drug that's been used in COVID, it's all compiled on that website. And if you look at ivermectin, the, the evidence for ivermectin, you're talking about 95 controlled drugs. Trials. So these are actual studies where people who got ivermectin were compared against a group and many different designs, right? But if you talk about the double blind uh randomized, at least three dozen. Now wow. here's the challenge with that, Clint is who knows this? Who knows that there's 95 controlled trials? And and by the way, that's just the controlled trials. We have immense amounts of epidemiologic evidence. And then we have these phenomenal reports that came out of health ministries from different countries around the world that you that employed ivermectin in early treatment programs and like obliterated case rates and deaths, emptied hospitals, but you don't hear about it, right. right? So what you hear about, and I think this is, I think one of the most important chapters of my book is is a chapter called the Big Six, and the Big Six refers to. The six, and I'm using air quotes here, (laughs) the six highest quality, rigorous, large, prospective, randomized control trials. And there were six trials that were done that were uh, funded either by health agencies, um, which are captured. That's another story. Um, But those six trials literally are the only ones that drove headlines around the world. Now, those six trials, out of the 95, they are absolutely unique in how they did it so the one of the first characteristics of the big six is that it's the only one of all of i think there's 45 early treatment trials it's the only one six out of the 45 where every single investigator on that study is drowning in pharmaceutical conflicts of interest Um, For instance, the NIH trial on ivermectin, the lead investigator (laughs) literally owns stock in a competitor to ivermectin. She gets money from Gilead and remdesivir. It's like this is who they chose to do this Uh trial. And that NIH trial that she did has the most brazen manipulation of data. You can actually see it right in the paper. No one talks about it. But here's my point is that when I go to this propaganda and censorship, this mountain of evidence that nobody knows about All they hear about are those big trials. That's the only ones the agencies look towards because they're considered the most rigorous. Um, They are actually screamingly fraudulent in what they did. They did the same playbook in each one of those trials. um, And that playbook has been used for decades. Uh, When they want to prove something that doesn't work, they are really good at doing that. So what did they do with ivermectin? Same stuff. You choose the mildest patients. As late into the disease as possible, you use the lowest dose as possible, and for the shortest duration as possible. <laughs> and when you do that, you're studying a sample in which it's really hard to find statistically significant benefits. And that that's kind of it's not a joke, but uh, Clint, those trials all found benefits, but they fell short of the threshold of statistical significance. And so they were written up and published, literally with conclusions, Ivermectin has no role in the treatment of COVID. So that's actually um, that's actually an, a blatant lie. You cannot actually write that conclusion based on their data. I mean, just because you don't reach statistical significance does not mean that the, the drug has no role. But But here's the thing is those trials were all published in the highest impact medical journals in the world. And the way the system runs is the only journal publications that drive headlines are those high-impact medical journals. So you've probably heard of them, New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of the American Medical Association. And it was those two that really, I would say, were the tip of the spear in the war on ivermectin. The trials that they published, so brazenly fraudulent, all of them negative and you saw just massive headlines, right? New York Times and, you know, horse dewormer proved ineffective right. and, you know, all of this stuff. And and so that was the propaganda campaign. And they, they know how to do it. You know, it's, it's called disinformation. It literally has a definition. It has a playbook of tactics. And yeah. and it was invented by the tobacco industry.
0: <laughs> well, what's interesting about it is that they, they then, you know, turn around and accuse us of disinformation. And I think, you know, from my vantage point as a public speaker I, I i'm more privy to the the suppression that came when it uh for speaking about these drugs on the internet and the censorship apparatus that rolled out almost instantly uh for particularly ivermectin like you just couldn't even say it. even to this day i'm not comfortable having you on my show on youtube because i know they'll nuke me for it because no, i know speaking speaking about ivermectin is just like it's just the it's like the N word. It's crazy. You just can't say it. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I, think that they're connecting those two dots though, of like both the, the medical, um, establishment suppressing any, any sort of the, the studies that you were working on to kind of demonstrate the efficacy and then simultaneously having the, the censorship apparatus that rolls out to address any sort of like independent speaking people. Yeah. That, that doesn't seem coincidental to me does it seem coincidental to you
1: i think that's brilliant you're you're ins- i mean you have to ask yourself why would they go so ferociously against literally one of the safest if not the safest FDA approved drug in history i mean this is a this is a drug right which eradicated two parasitic diseases that were disfiguring that caused blindness all across a lot of low and middle income countries the inventor uh, the discoverer won the Nobel prize for its impacts on ridding the, the world of these two horrific diseases right And those diseases were eradicated by mass distribution campaigns in endemic areas i mean they gave it to children women and adults and old people and and here you have you're sitting in covid and suddenly it's worse than fentanyl whereas on on public outlets like youtube thou shalt not speak its name i mean we can talk about fentanyl all day long right right but you cannot mention it. I mean, you just have to look at that and you have to say, gee, scratch your head. Like, why would they do this? There's right?
0: something there. Yeah. And there's I mean there's gotta be something there. And and I mean, the fact that Ivermectin not not only has it saved countless lives, but it also, you know, it has such a such a tremendous safety profile. Like even if even if it's not efficacious in addressing COVID, it's still not harmful. And yep. and on the inverse of this, you have a vaccine which is rolled out, which I also can't discuss on YouTube, any of the the negative consequences that come from forcing that into billions of people globally. I can't talk about that. So those the disparate treatment on these things is just so glaring. You'd have to be a fool not to say, OK, something something is afoot here. And well, I think this is this is why the conspiracy theories have been so abundant in this period. Clint,
1: so when I talk about the disinformation campaign against ivermectin, so the the book's called The War on Ivermectin, and I would say the book is kind of uh, half biography, half case study of showing how disinformation is practiced when, uh, so disinformation, right, the the definition of it um, is uh, tactics used. When science emerges that's inconvenient to an industry's interest, and every industry practices it, right? So coal and gas and you know, tobacco invented it, pharmaceutical, you know, energy, agriculture, food. Okay. They're all doing disinformation, and And that's the other thing. So if you read this book, I, I, my hope is that it, it's really, you know, I, I'm an educator. So I taught my whole career. I, I ran training programs for subspecialists. I taught medical students and residents. I wrote textbooks and I love teaching. And, and I think, you know, the other part of this book, it's really like a, a case study in how disinformation is practiced. And and I documented everything, Clint, because I had a front row seat to this. In fact, I apparently I launched myself into the middle of this war. And <laughs> I'm going to say me and my little band of brothers in the FLCC, we, we, we were like the bad, bad news bears up against the Yankees, you know. And so, <laughs> but but to, to your point, I, what I want to say is the disinformation campaign going after ivermectin and I would say hydroxychloroquine, those were identical campaigns, same tactics, they were completely uh, linked to the pro-vaccine campaign of safe and effective, right? And censoring mm-hmm. all negative data around the vaccines and, you know, pushing it on pregnant women. And you needed those two to accomplish what they accomplished, right? Because let's say they had allowed open discussion and sharing and dissemination of the real evidence around ivermectin. What would that have done to the vaccine campaign? Well, two things. One, right, it would have... um and violated the EUA, right? So the EUA is dependent on not having an effective treatment, but mostly it would have skyrocketed vaccine hesitancy. And that was public enemy number one, right? They, they went after vaccine hesitancy using all the tools they could. And I mean, imagine what would happen if the world was aware that they could take like this safe, widely used, uh, you know, widely available medicine that had been used for decades instead of lining up for an experimental shot. I mean, Don't you think that a lot of people are like, ah, I'll just take ivermectin if I get sick, right? <laughs> and I so, did. <laughs> yeah, so, so, but yeah, th- those two campaigns were linked, and you know, after I kind of was finishing the book, I, I've been doing writing on the vaccines in terms of you know how how corrupt and fraudulent the conduct of of that science was, um, and and I'll tell you the the another big tactic. So I talked a little bit about the big six. That's a tactic that's called the fix uh, from the disinformation playbook. And, um, you know, the the other thing that they do, it's part of the fix. So they publish fraudulent trials with predetermined results. So they design these trials. They know what the trials are supposed to show and they know how to conduct them. So they find the result they want. They publish it. Similarly, they censor anything that's inconvenient. So those journals will not publish positive trials and there are dozens and dozens of positive trials and i have a network of ivermectin researchers around the world and there was a time and i documented in a chapter in this book where like literally we were all writing to each other because everybody's studies were getting immediately rejected from the high impact journals you could not publish a positive ivermectin study in any of those journals so you know when people ask like what's the evidence for ivermectin it's like there's a ton of evidence, but you wouldn't know about it, right? Because exactly. it just doesn't appear. And so, yeah, the censoring was really bad. And then the editorials, nonstop editorials in the highest impact journal, you know, discrediting Ivermectin using the big six and wickedly, wickedly effective, you know, not um, my, my tally of that war is that myself and the FLCCC, along with, I would say, similar organizations in every country around the world, like the FLCCC is not unique. I mean, we we were a group of doctors that stood up, tried to provide sound medical guidance, but we weren't alone. I mean, I know the groups in Canada, you know, Canadian COVID Care Alliance, South Africa, um, India, Belgium. I mean, there there were groups everywhere that we were all standing up. Yeah. Um, We were getting suppressed. And I would say we fought that war to a stalemate. Um, Those that know it works and have been using it, like doctors and whatnot, or patients or people, um, will continue to. Um, those who have never used it and have been led to believe that it's a discredited horse dewormer that's ineffective, they will never start using. You can't even start using it. A doctor right now who works for a health system, let's say he wants to say, let me me try ivermectin and give it to this patient. You're done, man. First of all, no retail pharmacy is going to, uh, you know, fill it. Um, you're going to have the boards on, on your, on your butt and you can even have your hospital saying, well, what is this? how, How are you prescribing ivermectin? It's a, it's a horse dewormer that doesn't work, right? So, I think that war is at a stalemate now, and and um, but I, I would argue, Clint. And this maybe sounds a little, you know, patting myself on the back, but you know, we fought that war to a stalemate. And I think we got good information to a significant portion of the globe, absolutely, and, and um, we did the best we could. We were up against forces that you wouldn't. Oh
0: yeah, man. Uh, I hope I hope you uh, can sleep well at night, knowing that that you did you did tell the truth when when it was basically criminalized, uh, which is just a bizarre sentence for me to say. Living mm-hmm. and having born, been born in America, it just feels, feels totally bizarre. But uh, on top of that, it was a global phenomenon. So is it, is it fair to say that the high-impact journals are owned by Big Pharma? It's not just fair. I mean, it's, it's
1: a well-documented truth. So, so when I talk about the high-impact journals and their complicity and corruption, I want to make it clear that's not my opinion alone. So that's been well described in books for decades. And so just to, just to show you, so there's a, um, a woman named Dr. Marsha Angel, A-N-G-E-L-L. She was the chief editor or editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the top rated medical journal in the world. So she did 20 years as the editor-in-chief. She resigned her position in 2001. And you know what she did after she resigned? She wrote a book. And in that book, she details everything that she witnessed in terms of the pharmaceutical control over trials, what gets published, you know, even their co-option of professional societies, you know, uh, physician societies like the AMA and all the subspecialty societies. And I mean, it's it's really terrifying when you see uh, just how controlled and corrupted uh, the medical sciences are. And. And you know, one, another thing that I write about in the book is I, I write about like my own personal and professional transformation in COVID because, uh, Clint, I'm going to tell you, you're going to laugh at this, but when, when COVID started, I literally read the New York times every day. <laughs> I, I, I knew you were going to laugh. <laughs> no, it, gets worse. it gets worse. So not only did I read the New York times every day, but I was like, that's the paper of record right arbiter of truth if you want to know what's really going on in the world you go to the best journalists in the world which is new york times that's where i started
0: yeah and sure I
1: probably had a similar faith and trust in the top journals i thought mm. the best science and the best scientists were published there now having said that you know i always had an idea that big pharma was bad and that they pulled a lot of hijinks and shenanigans they probably manipulated things in their favor but that's like they were kind of peripheral manipulating things. I didn't know they were central and little driving the whole the whole train.
0: Yeah, and, didn't know it was ground level.
1: No, I, I did not know ground level, top down, everything. You know, side right. side. Like I didn't realize that that game is completely fixed. And and you know, and then and then what I've learned about propaganda and censorship. I, I, I mean, I mean, first the propaganda censorship started with you know bashing early treatment drugs, then promoting vaccines, and now. You cannot find a topic that's not being censored or propagandized. I mean, the, the you know Ukraine. I mean, the, the stories that they they come out, the narratives around Ukraine, oh, yeah. around the Twitter files, which were devastating. And what I mean, the Twitter files should be like the biggest story of our time. Yeah, you know, that, that when agree. you discover that literally every agency of government was linked to every social media company and one was driving the other and telling them what to get rid of, what to put out there. And yet, who's covering the Twitter files? Who's covering the FBI whistleblowers, right? Like, I mean, there's so many really important stories that are so, so impactful to us as a country, as a society, as our future. And it's just being massively censored.
0: (laughs) You ain't lying. And you basically just, laid out the last or the the only three years that i've been doing this show Uh, that those are all the topics that i focus on and and for the record i was an entrepreneur i was a mortgage guy like i had no interest in going into like a, a journalism interview type of field but uh as soon as you kind of the same awakening that you had i had it simultaneously and i'm just like all right well we need to get these stories to people and if no one's willing to to tell the truth on the mainstream news well then you know and if Tucker Carlson's going to be fired because he's willing to talk about it well then i guess we're going to have to have to create as many independent outlets as possible to try and get the word out but it's it's horrifying it really is and i agree with you the twitter leaks really demonstrated how pervasive this is that you know Anthony Fauci and CDC uh god the list goes on and on FBI CIA what? DHS Uh, Like everyone had a backdoor or or an influence campaign against Twitter. And you know that that extrapolates to every social media platform, undoubtedly. Um, So let's let's dig into to the Fauci story. Um, You know, my my estimation after talk, I mean, I've had Dr. Robert Malone on. I've I've talked to a lot of people about this stuff. Uh, My belief is that he essentially circumvented. Uh, gain-of-function research bans. He, he outsourced and, and funded it through NIH, or excuse me, well through NIH to EcoHealth Alliance, yep. Peter Daszak, and into the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I think that there's a high probability that it was, um, well, actually, I, I my original thesis was that DARPA was ultimately behind this, but they had actually rejected one of those grants, saying that this gain-of-function research was too dangerous. So maybe, maybe he was just rogue. I. I I, I'm hesitant to ask you for a conclusion because I know we're connecting a lot of disparate dots here. But uh, do you have an assessment as to the origin story here?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it's settled science that 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 was it uh, came out of a lab period. That was a bioengineer. That, that part we don't even have to discuss. Um you know where it gets trickier and where i try to stay in my lane although my lane i think is getting wider now <laughs> you know <laughs> is that i try to keep to the medicine the evidence the trials you know i'm not a political scientist or analyst but you know having heard from so many sources that have looked at this i mean i think the work of david martin is really mm. the most terrifying right so he he can trace the history of genetic manipulation of viruses and the the obtaining of patents that were directly related i mean they were working on these vaccines before COVID hit. Right. So, I mean, this was all a body of science that was being practiced for an event such as this. So, so the history runs well, well prior to COVID, right. Including the simulation exercises. And so, you know, it came out of a lab, you know, they were getting ready for it. You know, they had all the answers already, which is vaccine, 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 vaccine. Right. I mean, so you almost see it as like a, a, an exercise. Like I, I almost think of it as a business model, right? Like, release virus, scare the world, sell them a vaccine, rinse, repeat, right? Like, Man. And I hate to sound like that kind of conspiracy theory is fear-mongering, but it really does seem like they're looking for more pandemics, right? I mean, I think my sense is this monkeypox business, this monkey business, like that was some lame attempt. It just failed. Like it just wasn't the right virus to scare enough people. And, you know, they had, they came out with a vaccine for it, right? And they started, you know, but that was such a lame attempt and, My hopes, again, I don't want to keep coming back to my book, but I think what we've learned here and the amount, if if you've really watched what happened in COVID, you have to be left with immense skepticism. Over mm-hmm. anything that's coming out of a consensus or an authority figure, right? Because those agencies are all captured, all the leaders there are working directly in the service of industry and or military or whatever it is, because you know, I think the tactics that were wielded in COVID were all honed and practiced by pharmaceutical industry. they're They're the best at disinformation and out of any industry because right? it's mostly disinformation is their practice. Wow. But who was behind them? Right. When you look, the con- they, they were literally contractors for the military. Right. I mean, so they were working for the military. And the other the other thing that worries me about this military is that when you look at the destruction of long held like medical ethics standards, you know, like we we. I thought we had a body of medical ethics that most doctors subscribed to and followed as best they could or as well as, as understood. we all did, Doc. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> so how do you obliterate medical ethics? And my only answer to that is that if you really look back at the way the world behaved in the last few years, it really smacks of military ethics. Right. So like to take that hill. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to sacrifice 100 men right? And, and even if you're getting slaughtered, you keep going because there's a greater objective that you have to get to and you take your losses. That's not how we practice medicine. You know, yeah. the patient is first and foremost and always, they are not an impediment to another objective. And, and, and I, that, I, I was really confused at why we seem to be ignoring uh, certain concepts, not only the medical ethics, but for instance, Clint, natural immunity disappeared in 24 hours. And you know what made it disappear was a page on the FDA website, which just basically told all the doctors in the country, do not check antibodies before vaccine. Having a history of a natural infection um, has no, you know, impact on the decision to vaccinate. Right. And that was the day when I said I, I, that was actually a pretty pivotal day for me, because when I saw what they were doing, because I'll tell you, when when the vaccines rolled out, my colleagues who are internists, they immediately when patients would come to their office. I mean, they did this unthinkingly. Let's send antibodies just to see if you've had, if you've been exposed and have protective antibodies. Sure. You know, don't, don't get the vaccine if you have antibodies. And here here the FDA, I think they saw that was happening and they had to quash it. But literally, you had the vast majority of doctors go along with it without saying, are you crazy? How why would you vaccinate someone who just got over the infection?
0: Well, and, and also also, how can you how can you be certain of efficacy of the vaccine if you have this other factor that's not being calculated? I mean, there's it's just bad science and I'm not even a scientist, but I can I can tell right away, like, okay, there's something's amiss here and and any doctor worth his salt should have been able to say the same and and it's just bizarre i mean you you already pointed out there was was many other organizations that spoke out but the reason i say you were part of a handful is because it was clearly a minority of doctors that had the courage to speak out during that time
1: you're right the 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 groups in each of these countries that i mentioned um i mean i'm closely collegial and attached to them but I mean, we were a tiny minority, you know, yeah. some of us developed outsized voices. And I think uh, I credit the work of our organization. I mean, we somehow lucked up and we, you know, we, we put together a really good website. And I think we presented credibly. And, you know, my Senate testimony, you know, really got uh, ivermectin out there as a, a topic to focus on and discuss. And so, yeah, but you're right. We, we were a small minority. And, and that was the other thing that was really scary, because everything I've done in COVID, like hasn't impressed me because i've just been doing what i've always done i've always challenged orthodoxy i've always asked questions about why are we doing it this way why aren't we doing it? and this 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 applies to stuff which doesn't have political or financial implications i mean i've just kind of always been a guy who questions you know orthodoxy and consensus you know sure. and it's not saying that uh, starting from the premise that it's always wrong you know but if you look at how consensuses are built or created especially in medicine It's got a really bad history. I mean, a lot of those consensus are literally manufactured. I mean, they are driven. They're almost
0: predetermined. And then Mm -hmm. the doctors go along with them. And and so they're established by by bad science. And and a good scientist goes, well, let's uh, let's take a step back and let's look at this again. I mean, no, no, you're absolutely right. So
1: you and and so when I started, you know, speaking out and kind of working on protocols and trying to talk about and disseminate it. I literally thought I would be one of many doing that. Of course, you know, like wouldn't we all? Like I'm a pulmonary critical care specialist, right? When I saw this thing coming, you know, you see Lombardy getting hit, you know, and then Seattle and New York, and you see the ICUs filling. And it, 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 that first year was was a doozy. I mean, that, that was, oh, pretty, yeah. no, was pretty wicked that first year. And and when I saw that coming, I mean not only was I already trying to figure it out, but I also had a a self-interest in it, right? I mean, I was on the front lines. I was, you know, buried in ICUs and like, I didn't want to get sick. I'm, I'm, you know, early fifties and I'm less overweight now. I wasn't in great shape during COVID and I I got destroyed in COVID. And so, you know, I had concerns and I just thought all doctors would be doing that, but it's odd. They, they really didn't. They, 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 they even went along with, uh, you know, the, the one of the big, in fact, I can't even list the absurdities that we've been through, Clint. I'm sure you can. But what about the one where, uh, you know, stay home until your lips turn blue? Like offering nothing.
0: Yeah. Nothing. Yep. You can't overwhelm the the hospital doc until you can't breathe you can't come in which in of course means it's too late but also the the lack of guidance on treatment meaning offering nothing just stay home like there's no disease you can't treat no discussion of vitamin d right and and then they and then they they censor anyone trying to give them advice because the the medical establishment has basically said we're not going to help you until you are on death's door Stay the fuck away from us. But simultaneously, independent outlets also are being censored to, that are just trying to tell people like, hey, make sure that your vitamin D levels are up. Make sure that you're exercising regularly. Make sure, you know, ivermectin, get, HCQ, get, the list goes on and on. Get sunlight.
1: So, you know, one of the, one of the things that we learned from the, uh, the flu pandemic of 1918 is that, do you know what the most effective therapy was for flu? It was actually natural sunlight and there's really good mechanistic reasons why cuz natural sunlight has near infrared light and the near infrared um, its impacts uh, biologically on the body are actually really potent quite profound and so like things like and and there, obviously it's linked to vitamin d and stimulation of vitamin d uh, biosynthesis i mean I mean, those are simple things that you could have told people to do, you know, and like literally the vitamin D thing is, is really important. So so, you know, this book, right, it's called The War on Ivermectin. There is another book that could be written, The War on Hydroxychloroquine. It would be kind of a copycat book. The War on Vitamin D was a subtle one. Because it never really entered this discussion. But anyone who's know, worth their salt about vitamin D, we know the vast majority of this country is vitamin D deficient. We know that those normal ranges have been manipulated, right? That, you know, they, they say 30 nanograms per deciliters is actually sufficient. No way. You know you want it over 50. And he, here's an interesting anecdote that I, that I think is really important to my book. So what happened is I gave that testimony in the Senate. And I thought that our guidance and our research and my review paper that I'd compiled, like just amassing dozens of trials and reports and all of these things, I thought that would be warmly received, openly embraced, and likely deployed widely in the prevention and treatment. That shows you where I started, Clint. I had a lot to learn. (laughs) And literally within days of that testimony, the first hit job that, that came after me was in the Associated Press. And... I'm sitting there like, what did I do? What is this? What is going on? <laughs> like, I, I, why am I like, you know, public enemy number one? I'm just the guy who's trying to do good work and provide sound guidance. And so for the next three months, you know, everything was sideways. And I didn't understand what was going on. I really didn't. I, I knew there was bad stuff afoot. I knew there were people pulling like some crazy stuff. Like my paper passed peer review and it was suddenly retracted. And they refused to publish it, something that hadn't happened in our cumulative academic careers of about 140 years. If you look at the five of us who wrote that paper, I mean, we've published over 1500 peer review publications and never had we seen a paper pass peer review. And then up, oh, the editor just comes in and says, we're retracting.
0: Yeah, that's
1: crazy, And so, so all these things were happening. But the point I want to make is in March of 2021, about three months after my testimony, I got an email from someone I didn't know. And it was a two-line email. Um, It was from this Professor William B. Grant, and he's actually one of the lead researchers on vitamin D in the world. He has like well over 300 publications, and he's a true vitamin D expert. And he wrote a two-line email to me. He says, Dear Dr. Corey, what they're doing to ivermectin, they've been doing to vitamin D for decades. And then he included a link to an article that was called The Disinformation Playbook, and it's on this website, I was written by this organization called the Union for Concerned Scientists. And the article is very well presented. It's simple to understand it outlines the playbook, which are these five tactics. And that's kind of thematically what, what my book is, at least the ivermectin sections is I, I literally go
0: after through
1: it. numerous, numerous examples of each of those five tactics, just to show almost like a case study. But, you know, I read that article and it was like a click. It it was like a light bulb went off. Suddenly, Clint, everything made sense. The last three months suddenly made perfect sense. I was like, they did that yesterday. They did that two days ago. They're trying to do that to us now. You know, like I'm seeing all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. It was like I saw the world so clearly. I was like, and then I came to the realization that, wow.
0: I'm in the firing line.
1: I, I am literally l- launched myself into the war on repurposed drugs. Like I'm, I'm literally in the middle of a disinformation campaign, and I am I am the like tip of the spear that's getting attacked. That's diagnosed. crazy,
0: man. What and I mean yeah. to have gone in there kind of blind to, And uh, you know, I laughed earlier about you saying that you used to read uh, the New York Times every day, but it's, you know, it's <laughs> like. Until you actually see it done to yourself or someone you know well enough to know that it's filled with lies, it's just hard to it's hard to wrap your head around. But I I think that that's what I've enjoyed so much about, you know, doctors like yourself and, um, you know, Robert Malone that that went on Joe Rogan and, and and were able to give a three hour expose on their entire way of viewing the world and their thought process and the assessments that they've made and why. And then, and then you have these headlines that come out almost, you know, knee jerk reaction that are just so, um, I mean, they're really defamatory ultimately. And it's, it's, it it just makes it so crystal clear what's happening. So what you just said
1: is so spot on, right? So once you understand what's going on and you can understand like how it works, like everything's predictable. Right. right. Put Malone on Rogan. I can write you the headlines for tomorrow like, <laughs>
0: exactly. right?
1: without even seeing them. I will actually write that article for you tomorrow. Right. It's going to yeah. start with his checkered background and yeah. the different quotes that are going to be used that, that question Robert and then that'll imply other things. And then they'll constantly show that what he says is wrong and not supported by the published medical evidence. And he's a missing. You know, it, it's so predictable. Right. But, you know, what you said, um, I think is really important because. You know, from where I started, and, and let, let me one up you on the New York Times thing. Where when this started, I literally thought Fauci was like a sympathetic fella in a tough spot, doing the best he could with a lot of critics. Literally <laughs> most people thought was. that, yeah. <laughs> like, so so i have come a long way, but <laughs> yes. But what broke through and, and what what kind of exposed this world? I thought I was living in a world that actually didn't exist, and that that was really kind of uh, disorienting for me. Is for to, sure. to see now I could the institutions and pillars of society had been exposed as not as benign and well intentioned as, as I thought they were structured, you know, yeah. and and that was really disorienting. But what what made that happen is that I became expert on a topic where I discovered the truth about ivermectin. And then I saw how all of those institutions and pillars of society acted. And I just saw brazen lies coming out of everywhere, misrepresentations and attacks and lies and fraudulent articles and constant propaganda campaigns. And then the censorship of social media, like it, it was just like it was, watching that war play out because I knew what the truth was, exposed everything to me. But I had to first become expert at something. Like, I wonder how these three years would have affected me had I not lost these jobs, not become an expert in COVID. Like, would I be in that system, like, pushing vaccines on everyone because all of the studies and
0: all of the high-impact journals tell me it's safe and effective? Man, I, 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 I tend to believe that you'd have you'd have patients that would come in and you'd, you'd do proper doctoring, and you'd realize, yeah, okay, I- well, Something's I will
1: obvious. tell you, let's say I had still been, I, I don't want to call myself brainwashed before, but let's say I'd had still had that or retained that in place of faith and trust in institutions. I will give myself some credit because at the time that natural immunity disappeared, like I was still in the system and I was really upset. I was like, what are they doing? So I'm going to say that I probably would have been a wrench in the, in, you know, in the so. gears. E- yeah. I think I definitely would have been a wrench, but well, um, the,
0: the reason, the reason I, um, you know, my red pilling, I'm a second gen libertarian, so like I've been kind of skeptical of power structures and power and uh, the media and everything else for my entire life. But what really I think radicalized or red pilled me fully was uh, I was a private mortgage broker during the 0809 uh, oh, recession that, that was a, a product of Federal Reserve intervention, uh, keeping interest rates too low for too long, and then uh, really loose lending guidelines when it came to institutional Uh, Lending on on single family residences not to mention you know trying to address minority disparities when it came to house ownership and blah 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 I can go down the whole list of things but to witness it and then to see the Dodd-Frank rollout which basically just criminalizes my industry which had nothing to do with the collapse and and gives a blank check bailout to the biggest banking institutions which were all responsible for the collapse it's like okay I know I now understand how this game is played so if you're in power you're you're protected and if you're not you're in trouble i am like so thrilled you brought this up because i got
1: to tell you something that happened to me two weeks ago i watched the big short and and i had seen it before it's an unbelievable movie but i will tell you when i watched it two weeks ago I, like, wanted to tell the whole world to watch the big short and just substitute COVID. Because look at what happened in that collapse. You see all of those institutions, like, literally behaving with the same objective, which is to make as much money and be as careless and reckless. You had the bond rating agencies in on, like, you had this perfect storm of all of these institutions, and they created literally a humanitarian catastrophe. That was 2008-9, right? Yep. And, and, and then you see, right. And you even saw narratives, right? So you saw all these leaders coming out, the housing market is sound. There is no bubble here, you know, and then you see okay. like on the front lines, the guys who were figured, and that's the other thing, like, I don't want to sound grandiose, but like when I saw it, when you see the central characters to that movie, the guys who figured out that the fix was in and that there was about to be a collapse, I thought it was analogous to like myself, my organization. You're absolutely right. We literally, mean, we've been seeing this and calling this. For a long <laughs> time. So yeah. the Big Short is literally about COVID, although yes. it was made before COVID. It's about the housing uh, market. Well, yeah,
0: or or you can frame it the on the inverse. Say COVID was really about the you know the Big Short. It's it's the same. It's the same paradigm. Like you have you have these institutions which have a lot of public trust. They shouldn't, but they do. Um, like the sec and and you know any sort of oversight that comes from the government when it comes to the regulatory bodies of the financial institutions ultimately it's just corporate capture but um, i actually made this point last night well let me let me connect the the full metaphor here and then you have the fda and and uh you know cdc that that have the same level of trust that is once again uh, misguided should not should not yep. be there um but it it essentially it it drops the veil on the public's eyes to what's actually transpiring. And it's truly, it's truly dangerous and detrimental, but what's really bad about it is that if the public doesn't wake up to what's happened, then they, they misappropriate blame. They, they point to the wrong things. They say, um, you know, like I, I hate, I hate how the, the Republicans, uh, have have managed to cover up the fact that this all rolled out on under Donald Trump like y- yes yep. there was a deep state coup and yes blah 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 like there was all these other things but it doesn't change the fact that Donald Trump was very proud of the fact that he was telling state governors you know you will you will only reopen when I say so I mean the yep. man the man got a taste of power and he liked it and so like to me this is a very bipartisan issue and and there's a, a A massive issue if like people are going to look at this once again and say this is about capitalism gone awry this is about greed like to me it's more complex than that it's really about power and trust and you know criminals in positions of power and no mechanism to remove them from those positions
1: and and you, you know so clint one of the things that you touched on which i think this is really important to talk about right is you know you said about like People need to learn so that they don't misappropriate blame, and similarly, or conversely, they shouldn't misplace their trust and faith. Right, and, and here's what here's where I think one of the biggest barriers to really making I don't want to use the word a revolution or a great awakening, but you know, to get the masses or the population to understand that those large and seemingly outwardly benevolent institutions. How can they be so corrupted? And I believe this is just my hypothesis is because I think it was how I used to think is that it's beyond our capacity to think of like, for instance, everybody in the CDC being corrupt. Well, guess what? That's not how it works. Right. Most the vast majority of people who work for the, S- the CDC are, you know, God fearing, family loving, well educated, like yeah, normal. People. They're just good people. So how is it that that agency is so corrupted? Well, I will tell you, let's talk. I think a good example is the vaccines. I think all of those people in the, uh, in the medical system, academia, you know, pushing that vaccine like there's no tomorrow, safe and effective, da, da, they got captured themselves. Like They're complicit, but unwittingly. So they believe in their institution and what it's providing and the guidance. So, so they just kind of go along. And so it's not like everybody in those, it really just takes a few leaders with the power. Like it's the guys that rise to the top. It's the Faucis and Walenskis that are willing to say and do anything. They're going out in the middle of the pandemic telling brazen lies to the entire country. And by the way, that also is the world, right? Because, you know, the world actually, you know, a lot of health. Ministry. They, they look at the NIH, and the, I mean, those are the biggest funded, the biggest funded public agencies in the world, and so they have this outsized role on the planet. And um, and when you see the leaders coming out and literally working in the service of others in pharmaceutical industry, you, you realize it just takes a few people at the top to control yep. the whole thing. Like like, there's i I'm going to keep. I'm going to keep citing The Big Short, but there's that one scene where Steve Carell or what his his I think his our character was Mark Baum, where he's trying to figure out what the hell is going on. How can the entire financial industry be acting on a mass delusion, right?
0: Mm-hmm. That's kind of
1: like, he just couldn't figure out how nobody is seeing that they're believing in a delusion. And he pays a visit to this woman who was like worked for Moody's or standard and poor, like one of the bond rating agencies. And that conversation is so damning Cause he's like, what are you doing? You realize that these bonds are full of like, you know, th- I mean, these people have no credit checks, they have no money, right. they have no income, there's no collateral, like, you're giving them grade A, you know, triple A bond rating. How can you do this? And she just basically, I mean, she's just a pawn in the whole system, right? She just says, well, if we don't, they'll go down the street to our competitor. And like, his <laughs> jaw just drives, he's like, literally, you're doing this? because it's like, he just couldn't figure it out. And, and it, you just see how like the average person can kind of be lulled or fooled into doing things that they otherwise should know is wrong. And they see it as standard normal business and it's everything gets normalized. Right. And, yeah. and so, and, and so I, I, you know, cause it's very hard claim, right? If you, if I were to tell the entire world right now, like don't trust CDC, don't trust NIH, don't trust FDA, don't trust New York times. Don't trust like, well what do you got what should i trust
0: yeah, exactly
1: and, and you know what i would answer that i would say because when you talked about how you know you got into you know kind of alternative media independent podcasters like i think you guys are the army right now defending our country to be honest and ways, i don't yeah. sound like a sycophant or like overly praiseworthy but like I think it's the last line of that. Thank God for the internet. Thank God for things like Rumble and like that. There are places that you can go where you can get people talking about things without conflicts of interest, without propaganda, literally having long discussions around nuances and sifting through evidence for things. And because without that, we're done. Imagine if we didn't have the internet or or, oh. or these. Like imagine if this was twenty years ago, right? Or in <clears throat> the nineteen eighties. I mean, they I, we would be.
0: Yeah, it would say. have been it would have been disastrous, but simultaneously, like the propaganda on the inverse wouldn't have been able to spread so so you know readily. So yep. it it's uh man, I, I agree though. I, I think that it, it really is important that um, independent <laughs> outlets are are willing to. Put their put their lives on the line, essentially, to or their reputations at minimum right. on the line to to try and give at least a counter narrative to to this stuff because it's it's really monolithic. I mean, if you look at the, I'm actually surprised that I haven't had my episodes where I go into the history of the the war in Ukraine uh, with Russia. Um, I, I'm surprised that they haven't been struck from YouTube, honestly, because I, I was convinced that the same. Uh, protocols that they rolled out in terms of censorship when it came to to covid 19 treatment would be the same uh, tools that they would start to use when it came to World War three which is where I believe unfortunately we're headed um, yes. it's it's very it's very scary but um, back to the the earlier point that we were talking about with um, you know institutional rot I think that it's very similar to the FBI you know I've had I've had on Kyle Serafin and Steve friend who are both mm-hmm. uh, FBI whistleblowers that have testified yep. and I mean just true blue awesome human beings you know and i and i'm a libertarian anarcho-capitalist so it's very hard for me to say that about an fbi agent but yeah. i love those guys they're they're amazing people and i your point is well taken that the ma- majority of people that are working in the cdc good people the majority of people in the fbi i think are probably really good people too um it's just that the the institutions themselves the financial imperatives the incentives that exist uh the rot is so deep and there's really no mechanism, there's no political will to to go after the corrupt actors that exist within it because the corrupt actors are the ones that actually have the mechanism to enforce yes. any sort of like moral hierarchy, I guess. And um I guess I mean my question for you is it sounds like you were more left leaning when you when you started down this path
1: one hundred percent, man. I'm like the
0: know, classic where, New York you, City liberal. <laughs> so where where are you at today? I mean what do you oh, have solutions I, I, I for sweat. me?
1: Oh, I've completely transformed. I mean, I, I will say I'm not Republican or Democrat because I, I actually don't think there's a huge difference ultimately in policy. Um, no, I, I think, though, uh, I what I would say is it, it, I actually think the party switched. What, what I thought used to be liberal and Democratic, yeah. the Republicans seem to be evincing those principles much more than that. I mean, they literally are standing up to power, at least in word. Yeah. Pre- free speech, anti-war. anti-war. Like, I mean, uh, they, they the want to reform the FBI. <laughs> so, so who switched the parties? I mean, who, switched, <laughs> no, who moved the principles from one side to another? Like, it's wild. I'm in the principles. So you I mean, I did vote Republican for the first time in my life. Um, you know, uh, here, here's an interesting thing. There's another funny anecdote. Right. So going into COVID, you mentioned the words Ron Johnson. I mean, I thought he was like the antichrist, like literally the worst politician in America. He was my mortal natural enemy, like, yeah, yeah. you know, because I believe the New York Times. The New York, what the New York Times taught me about Ron Johnson, I mean, he's the m- most odious person ever to live <laughs> right? and be in politics. You, then it comes that my life connects with Ron. I get to meet Ron. I find out that within three minutes, I absolutely respect and admire the guy. I knew where he was coming from, what he was trying to do. And everything I've known of him since, I have nothing but the deepest respect and admiration for that guy. I love that. And, and so, like, in fact, I went to uh, me and my partner, Paul Merrick. We we went to Ron's election night party and got hung out with his family. And his family are huge friends of me, you know, uh, fans of me and Paul. And it was like it was one of the special nights, actually. I, I was – I mean, think about that, Clint. So, from where I started right. three years later, I'm at Ron Johnson's election night party having the time of my life. I mean, <laughs> I make that up.
0: <laughs> life life is strange like that. But I think that this is actually a, a better alignment of civilization is that we're coming, uh, even though we are dividing into, you know, kind of partisan worldviews, I think that, that that may be unhealthy. But I think what is healthy is that we are realigning with people based off of true. Principles like I don't want to be locked in my house. I don't want to have something forced in my body. I don't want to die in nuclear hellfire. Like there, there are some common principles that I feel like much of the dissident left and dissident right have come together on and agree upon. And I think that 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 is a foundation that's much more solid than I am blue party, I am red party, you're my enemy for X Y Z. Um, I- Totally so I, it, I hope I hope that means better days are ahead.
1: You know, you know what it is. You know how I would describe what you just said. It, it's like it's it, we're we 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 we're in a time now where those principles are not abstract, like reading in civics books or social studies. I mean, they're, they're no longer just words on paper, like. They're like really real. They've been crystallized. They, exactly. they are literally ingrained in our lives.
0: Like these. This, this ain't philosophical you know, no more, brother. You know, no,
1: no, exactly. <laughs> this isn't a debate in a college classroom. It's like literally, our lives depend on protecting free speech yes. and freedom. You know, from uh, from intrusion, from you know, bodily autonomy, physician autonomy. You know, one Agreed. of the things I was about to tell you about, you know, all the alternative media and independent podcasts is, is thank God you don't need a license to do that because Clint they go after your license. Oh, you would yeah. no longer be able to podcast.
0: So oh, yeah. I'd, for I'd, freedom
1: be, to podcast. <laughs> I'd be a
0: black market podcaster on pirate radio in a, in a hot second. If, I mean, honestly, in the UK, they're going after uh podca- Like, granted, he's some sort of like Nazi dude. So, like, it's not the same thing I do. But I, you can see the, the entree into this arena where they're going. I mean, the same thing happened to Joe Rogan when he was having you guys on. It was like, you can't talk about things that are totally against the whatever the real narrative they're pushing is. And if you do it, even if you're independent, quote unquote, they're still going to come for you. And yep. I think that's why it's incumbent upon, you know, the the average people that, that care about free speech, open dialogue, critical thinking, that they support the independent outlets that are out there. And let's end it with that by saying, please, everybody, go pick up the book by Dr. Pierre Corey, "The War on Ivermectin," I have linked down below to it, and uh, I really appreciate your work. I really appreciate your courage, sincerely. And as you said, you know, you didn't feel as if it was courageous; you were just doing what you were supposed to. But you did it when a, in a time when people weren't uh, permitted to do so, and that does take courage. And and uh, you know, I really hope that that history looks upon you and your your handful of compatriots kindly, because I I believe strongly that. Those are the people that, that we learn from uh, if we're to have a functioning civilization moving forward. Thank you again, I, Dr. Corey.
1: I appreciate those sentiments, Clint. I really enjoyed talking to you. It was a great conversation and uh, I, I appreciate your work right back. And so keep, keep, keep doing what you're doing, man, because
0: we're done if you don't. Yeah. Well, same, same to you. brother. <laughs> <laughs> thank, you. Thank, thank you guys so much for tuning in. If you want to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. I will be in New Jersey at Icarus Fest uh, June, what is it? I forget. It's like the 9th through the 11th. Go to IcarusFest.com, pick up tickets, use the code LOCKDOWN20, and uh, come out and see us speak. It's going to be a blast. We're out of here. Peace. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please stand your bar code. Your Liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from, and where did it